Ontology, The Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Previously in the Ontology podcast series With the fall of the landed gentry class, the Wanderers suddenly took center stage the presence of the wanderers is a sign of the destruction of the old civilization, but not the cause. They have no capacity to recreate civilization, yet they repeatedly overestimate their own importance. The wanderer makes his living by peddling his magic tricks, and the only buyers are, of course, the rulers, whose interest in strategies is generally to suck more resources from society, with the landed gentry being their main obstacle. Season 2 Lords and Wanderers Episode 4. Ayn Rand voted for FDR. The 20th century was an epoch of revolution. For the United States, it witnessed the gradual transformation of the traditional United States from an overseas Switzerland into a world roam through the New Deal, McCarthyism, and the culture struggle during the Vietnam War. Ayn Rand was a competent witness for these three watersheds. When we trace the life track of Ayn Rand and her contemporary Americans along with these three turning points, we will discover the pattern of the evolution of the American Constitution in the light of this reference framework. Before the 1930s or by the end of the 1920s, Ayn Rand had been a renegade in the Soviet system which was consolidating and pulling back. The United States she had perceived was a cartoon image distorted by Soviet propaganda. The image of the so-called million-dollar empire, after some transformation and sieving, could also be found in the earlier Chinese readings. The travel notes like the so-called Muses Goddesses came to Million Dollar Empire from Mount Parnassus, which was actually an American image that the Soviet propaganda department attempted to create. But for someone as sharp-minded as Ayn Rand, this fabricated image was exactly what she liked. She saw through the Soviet propaganda by reverse reading and uncovered the truth that the Soviet Union attempted to bury, conceal, distort or subvert. You can try to imagine a North Korean who, except for Marx's books, has no access to any information that is not written by a North Korean and or the orthodox ideological works sanctioned by the government, can however know the true Europe through the very works of Karl Marx. Ayn Rand got to know about the United States in such a similar way. The United States in her mind, that is, a robber's paradise for the big capitalists and a living hell for the working people, vilified by the Soviet Union, was a great source for her to break free of the increasingly suffocating conditions under the Soviet rule. She was a bit like some Chinese youth in the 1980s who perceived the United States of the Kennedy era in the United States of the Reagan era. In their eyes, the United States was a laissez-faire country, where men and women indulged in unbridled social liberty, divorced at will, and enjoyed a high degree of sexual freedom under the protection of condoms and penicillin. In fact, such an America was only the surface of reality in the Kennedy era, and no longer applied in the Reagan era. But in the minds of the Chinese, that was the way America was because even at the peak of conservatism, the US was still a society much freer than China. That was how Ayn Rand viewed the United States who built her thoughts from clues found in the loopholes of the Soviet's propaganda. Therefore, the thoughts she later formed, in many aspects, had the exaggerated cartoon character of the Soviet Union. She liked to depict the elites who challenged the traditional values and establishment who liked to build a utopian paradise of those challengers outside of the existing social order, and this utopian paradise confronts the old society in a revolutionary way.
The evil of the old society is not the kind of chronic evil as the result of the system's weakening and erosion, rather an exaggerated cartoon image, embodied by the wicked millionaires parroted in the Soviet satirical novels. In her novels, socialists exercise monopoly power through deals with the government and the Congress, leaving the few talented men with no options. You have to pay attention to the fact that, in addition to being socialists, they resemble the fictional American capitalists portrayed by the Soviet satirists in the 1920s and 1930s. The evil American millionaires in Mikhail Zushchenko's novels operate the same way as the socialists in Ayn Rand's Atlas shrugged by colluding with the Congress and the politicians bought by the capitalists, cornering the working class with disadvantageous price agreements. Staunchly anti-Soviet as Ayn Rand was, you can't fail to recognize the underlying similarities between the two satirical images. These antagonists are not humans. They are not people who have fallen because of their inherent weakness, but those exceptional creatures who are proud of their own extraordinary wickedness and are being evil for evil's sake. Such characters were rare in real life, but most of the people who grew up immersed in the propaganda of the Soviet Union had such comic images. Upon arrival in the United States in the 1930s, Ayn Rand did one thing that fully proved that she had little understanding of this country and was a complete outsider at that time. When she gained the right to vote in the presidential election for the first time, she voted for Franklin D. Roosevelt. Based on her reputation after death, this behavior was ridiculous. It doesn't matter if an average person voted for Roosevelt. Ayn Rand happened to be a prophet of capitalism and a thinker of liberalism, and FDR just represented what she was trying to condemn and correct. For other people, it could be understood that they might have a faulty judgment, their judgment was not good enough and it could only be ignored. But it was hard to justify that people like a prophet figure like Ayn Rand would actually have voted for FDR. So fans of Ayn Rand rarely mention this fact. But this incident was significant. First and foremost, it showed that even a person as intelligent as Ayn Rand, as long as she was an outsider, it was difficult to have a full understanding of the ins and outs of American politics, at least in the beginning. Second, it showed that Rand was indeed a highly astute person, because by the time of McCarthyism in the 1940s, her stand in the American political struggle was already very much in keeping with her own ideological values. People, like Ayn Rand, are gifted and have insight into and keen observation of the structures and proportions of society and politics. They can always, within a very short period of time, with access to only minimal information, come to such an understanding of things that those less enlightened can't achieve over a very long period of time and with an abundance of information. This was Ayn Rand in the 1930s. When Ayn Rand cast her vote for FDR, another future big shot emerged from a poultry farm in Wisconsin, who was to become the future Senator Joseph McCarthy. Senator McCarthy had earned a good reputation as a judge in Wisconsin, thanks not to rich court knowledge though. According to the evidence we have now, he was not a good student when he was at the poultry farm, nor did he ever demonstrate an inclination to learning. The reason he was able to become a judge is simply that, at least in rural areas and small towns in most states except for a very few large cities like New York, the bar was not set too high for studying law and becoming a lawyer or a judge. Passing the law exam and being a lawyer or a judge in those places was not a very competitive business. Being able to be a judge in those places was not mainly due to the high level of one's legal knowledge, but mainly because one passed the virtue test or, more precisely, one could win the instinctive trust of the folks. The fellow villagers have no ability to assess the competence of jurisprudence. 
In such an ingenious small town among guileless people, there aren't scandalous high-profile cases to handle. It would be quite out of the ordinary to deal with a nasty divorce case or a murder case once in decades. In such places, a lawyer would not be able to give full play to his or her talent, unlike Hillary Clinton who as a novice was handed over the Watergate scandal by President Nixon to put up a big show of her skills. People living in Wisconsin were mostly unsophisticated and many of them were honest owners of poultry farms and dairy farms or grocery shopkeepers. There were basically no poor people and very few baddies. Occasionally, a very small number of criminals, in the heat of emotions, mostly because of relational conflicts or other impulses, had committed trivial crimes that were definitely not materials for detective novels. Were you a lawyer in such a place, you could only deal with trivial cases. Therefore, according to Confucianism, this was a place where morality prevailed over talent. The young McCarthy was such a person whose morals surpassed his talents. He later became a judge in Wisconsin and won the trust and support of the people mainly on the strength of his morals. His life at this stage was very similar to the B-movies in Hollywood, such as the movie A Family Affair in the Andy Hardy series. Those B-movies are not exquisite in terms of their artistic taste, but congenial to the ideologies of the middle class in the United States whose hearts were deeply warmed watching them. To them, these are stories about the pals we know. The good guys around us are just like those in the movies. Senator McCarthy was then such a Judge Hardy. At the same time, Ayn Rand was a wanderer who first found her way to New York and California, with a little bit of achievement and a little bit of money, started to cultivate her social life. You can tell the two polarized figures by their respective contacts. McCarthy was a product of the community in the central United States. He had the same idea with the white neighbors around him who were full of Anglo-Saxon prejudice but good morality. In their mind, there was no theoretical system nor anything that depended on theory. Their way of thinking and acting mainly relied on experience and common sense. He was inseparable from the local community where he grew up and could not imagine one day departing from it and rebelling against society as a challenger. In fact, if someone did this, then the only place the person could go was New York. He would earn him an indignant glare from passers-by in his hometown and anyone would think that he was not much different from a madman. He had to go to only New York to be a literati, a writer, or a film actor. Since Ayn Rand came to California and then moved back to New York, her social circle consisted largely of intellectuals. Among these intellectuals, Jews accounted for at least half of the batch, if not more than two-thirds. Among the remaining half or one-third of the non-Jews, people of the European continent were overwhelmingly dominant. So straightforwardly, apart from her husband who was not an authentic American, Ayn Rand rarely knew the real Americans and never entered the real American circle. Later, after her fame, Nathaniel Brandon's people who depended on her were highly intellectually developed students, and among these students, the Jews once again occupied a very high proportion. In other words, we can reliably say that the atheist and foreign intellectual, Ayn Rand, never really entered American society. The way she understood American society was totally different from those of McCarthy who relied on his experience and instinct. As the familiar platitude goes, blood is thicker than water, McCarthy connected his heart with people, they were brothers that connected by flesh even if their bones were broken. And what did Ayn Rand rely on? 
She was a disassociated intellectual, precisely because she was not in touch with the American society so there was a kind of transcendental justice, coupled with a natural acuity and a special talent to grasp the ideological symbols, so she could quickly grasp the meanings behind those various symbols. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative 